Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year, first weekend in June 2015. We had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to ATXFestival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there, because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to ATXFestival.com. This year, my pal Todd Cooper and I got the opportunity to write a theme song for ATX, uh, and we had a lot of fun doing it. They wound up recording uh, different music to the lyrics that we wrote, but we are really partial to the version that we did, so you're going to hear that before every ATX-recorded podcast that I put out. So please... Go to ATXFestival.com and get your badge for 2016 and enjoy this theme song that we wrote. TV family, we're glad you came, where everybody knows your name. Greatest scene you've ever seen on either side of your TV screen. So keep it weird and beat the Texas heat. Writers panel, which is a podcast. You guys know it? Yeah. That's great. That's very flattering. Um, I assume that I record these things and nobody listens to them. And you know what? Don't give a shit. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, it's a podcast in which I talk to television writers about the business and process of writing television. I am also a television writer myself. I'm currently working on the DreamWorks Netflix series Puss in Boots. It's about a talking kitty cat. Um, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, which is available as a podcast on the Nerdist Network. Now you may applaud for it. Let's get started, you guys. We're going to talk about audiences, and uh, we have a, an unbelievable lineup today. Uh, so without any more of me talking, please give a round of applause to all of our panelists, Phil Rosenthal, Brian Fuller, Kathleen McCaffrey, 
and Noah Hawley. Three, sit anywhere. Sit anywhere. Three of my favorite writers and my new favorite HBO executive. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know, Kathleen is a uh, uh, in development at HBO. Is that right? That's Original right. programming. That's right. Um, and you know who the rest of these guys are. This is like a really sad episode of The Bachelorette. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so lucky, though. Look at this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is going to end with a twist. Two or three choices. <laughs> That's what you think, Brian. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. New things for me. There's a twist on this. <laughs> uh, let's talk about audiences. Hi, Ben. Hi. Hi, Ben. Hi, you guys. Hi, Ben. Let's... No, I'm fine. <laughs> it's just a nod. It's just a knowing nod. It's really playing it cool. A bro nod. Austin local Noah Hawley. <laughs> um, let's talk about audiences. Uh, and Phil, I want to start with you um, because audiences can be large. They used to be in the good old days of television. Uh, during the heyday of Everybody Loves Raymond, which I believe ran for 30 years in the 1970s. <laughs> um, He's done his homework. <laughs> Uh, we don't have to talk about numbers, and I say this to everyone, we don't have to talk about numbers. I know that makes people uncomfortable, and I know it makes networks uncomfortable. I have number envy. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious to know... Uh, but our numbers were nothing compared to the All in the Family numbers. Well, right? and, and that's the thing. When I mean, there were only three networks, you know, yeah. I don't mean to sound like Grandpa, but <laughs> things were better then when you had... But they, they got crazy audiences, like... A third of the country was watching them every week. Yeah. So, so they had real impact. So, yeah, I feel like this has been a conversation that's gone on for 40 years now. Yes. Is in the 70s, they were talking about how we don't have what we had when there were only two stations. But now it's dropping geometrically. Right. Absolutely. Now, because of the Internet, obviously, everybody knows yeah. why. But it is, it's exponentially falling, the the audience, so the best you can hope for is to attract that, what you're here talking about, this mm -hmm. niche. Mm -hmm. You know, the target audience, the interested audience. And, well, but uh, this seems to be the thing, but I do want to go back. Yeah. And uh, So when Raymond started, uh, was it a hit out of the gate? Was no. there an audience out of the gate? How long did it take, <clears throat> excuse me, to find an audience? Uh, it built slowly. We were on Friday nights at 8.30. That's when we started. We were on behind a show called Dave's World, mm -hmm. and there hadn't been a hit in that time slot, 8.30 Friday nights, since Gomer Pyle. <laughs> That's what they told us. And we didn't change that. But the three or four people that watched, they did come back. The critics liked the show. And when, when CBS was having trouble on Monday nights with a, a show, uh, the, the president of CBS, Les Moonves, called me in his office. He said, we have, we have a spot for you, on a good spot on Monday nights where Murphy Brown has been and all these great shows have been, you know, they were, that was the big comedy night on CBS, Monday nights. We're going to give you a, a chance, six episodes starting in March. But listen, if you don't perform there, we can't help you anymore. That's it. So then we were really nervous because now we're getting a shot. Right. And we got that shot and our ratings doubled in that first appearance. So you'd think, wow, we, we win, right? <laughs> no, Ray and I were... Doubly nervous because why? <laughs> now we could only go down from there. <laughs> but the next week, 
our ratings went up from there. And that's when we knew hmm. we were okay. But that's it's such a strange and seemingly arbitrary thing that could they do do you think they could have put any show in that time slot and had the numbers double from where, you know, if it had been on Friday night previously? I like to say no. I <laughs> Of course we like to think no. But there's this weird dance that happens, right, about... I think you get sampled. Honestly, I think you get sampled mm -hmm. if you have a good time slot. But then they have to like it. Right. And it's a testament to the show that the numbers continue to go It's not in olden times where you had to get up to change the channel. (laughs) And uh, people, people, there were certain shows we used to joke where, you know, the audience for this show is is dead people. People who haven't been able to get up and change the channel. That's why they watch that show after that show. Yeah. and, And then, so once you guys found that audience, um, was there pressure to maintain such a large audience? Like, was it a, a constant conversation, or could you ever be comfortable? After the first season, the notes tend to go away because they have bigger problems. If your show is working, you can answer to this. You don't need to focus on the one that's okay, right? Yes, if something started to drop precipitously, there'd be a, a fire alarm. Mm-hmm. But... You know, until that happens. Or you get canceled big when the numbers right. fall. That, that's easy. <laughs> well, speaking of, that's a hell of a segue. Brian and Noah. <laughs> Hello, yes. Uh, you guys were making network television at around the same time and obviously did not find the success that, uh, that Phil did. But you did have shows that got on the air, which is an enormous feat in itself, and that lasted a couple episodes to a couple of seasons. Uh, can you guys talk about that experience and the conversations that were going on and how uh, about audience and how it affected creativity on the show, if at all? Well, I mean, there are certainly what we call kill zones on the schedule, you know, where they put you in a time slot that no show has ever won in a no show, you know, will ever win. When yeah. when I did my generation, they put us Thursday nights at 8, which is 7 <laughs> o'clock in most of the country. And and then, you know, CBS put Big Bang Theory there. And, right. you know, so you, you can't launch a new show with no lead-in. You know what I mean? So we sort of knew, even though ABC had said we were the big, their big fall show and it, we got the first marketing dollar, you know, out of the box... You know, there wasn't really. We didn't have a chance to right. succeed. You know, and then and then. You uh, mean they lied to you? Well, <laughs> they changed presidents on us, which is the other thing that can happen to you. But I will say, and and I think we have actually talked about this in the past. Check out the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, My Generation was a really good show, and it, but it was a, I imagine a difficult show to sell because yeah, it was a show you had was, to experience, even if they could make a poster for it it was a fake documentary about you know these 10 people in two time periods and like how do you convince the how do you sell that idea you know and and abc god bless them you know they're 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 not the best at 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 marketing the way that fx is you know Mm -hmm. so um so yeah it was tough out of the gate and and you know for steve mcpherson this was a passion project for him and then he went ahead and quit like a month before we premiered which i think is a pretty standard story i don't feel i don't take it personally but um but you should yeah well, I, w- I will now are you why he quit yeah. yeah i think i think yes i'm why he quit um 
But yeah, and you know, and then the unusuals, which you know, was sort of a mid-season. Let's see if this works. Which they, you know, that's a thing too, where they just sort of they've got to fill the time slots, and they they'll they'll throw something at the wall, but they won't support it in any way, marketing-wise, and they just sort of put you in a time slot, which was a sort of um, again that was a Thursday. That was the spot after Lost. So, and no show had ever worked there. And when I talked to Damon about it, he said, yeah, you're competing with us because what happens is people record us and then they watch us at 10 when they should be watching you. So not only were we competing against everything else that was on at that hour, we were actually competing against the show in front of us. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's just the dance that it is and you just try to make the best show possible and you can't control what happens to it. Absolutely. I think that's what it comes down to and why I didn't want to run this panel. I think, <laughs> I think we can all agree. Like you're, you can ultimately just try to make the best product that you can make. Uh, but, Brian, I do want to talk about uh, your experience on Pushing Daisies specifically. Because that, that, that show, uh, obviously a beloved show, a really remarkable show, uh, that was allowed to breathe a little bit, but I imagine you also were constantly hearing about Make how you weird. needed to get... Well, yeah, trying to get more audience. Um, well, we had a really great launch. Uh, ABC launched us very enthusiastically. They were totally behind the show. And there were always concerns about making it much more digestible in terms of what the audience would be familiar with, like amping up the crime procedural of it. And for me... Any sort of crime procedural story has to provide a thematic umbrella under which you're telling the character stories. So if that's not happening, then it's not interesting. So there's a little bit of, couldn't you be a little bit more like this? And and uh, But I, I think the marketing of the show, I think they really tried with the marketing. With Wonderfalls on Fox, we had a meeting where... You they are were also fans, right? Okay. You have to allow that. <laughs> We uh, we sat down and the marketing team at, at Fox told us we have no idea how to market the show and Todd Holland turned and I turned, we turned to each other and we're like like it's not like it's it's not they just don't know what to do with the show. So what do they you do with that? that? Yeah, we don't know how to market the show and and this was really before social media too. So yeah, even yeah. you didn't even have a personal. But outlet. that's like that's like going to the hospital and the doctors say we have really have never done this before. We don't. Have- <laughs> It looks like you have a doorknob-shaped bruise on the back of your. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah. So it was. It was. It was um, enlightening and shocking, and uh, and we pitched stuff to them. We we're like, you know, how about just a picture of the wax lion that says, "You will believe a wax lion can speak." And they were like, "No, how about like the girl cheering and standing in the air?" And we we're like, "No, don't do that, please." And that's what they did, and nobody watched. So it's it's tricky when you're dealing with a marketing department that doesn't have an imagination. But they, yeah. but they also, I mean, what they used to do, there used to be this thing called repeats, right? So, um, you know, we, when my generation was taken off the air and replaced by repeats of Grey's Anatomy, which did no better, um, but was cheaper, I guess, for them. And the expectations. And then the next year, they sort of stopped canceling things after the first or second episode, you know, because I think they realized they, they didn't have anything else to put in that slot, and we paid for them. Why not just let them run? So now it seems like they give things more of a chance to just sort of 
fail on their own. Yeah, and I do want to pick up on that. And uh, fail we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think all of you guys have benefited from things being left on the air and being allowed to find an audience. Kathleen. Yes. Hi. You said you didn't want to speak, but you're going to. Well, I'm just, it's just so crazy that I'm on this panel. Everyone here is so cool, and I'm so not cool. Come on. Oh, those are great jeans. Thanks. <laughs> it's the okay, right cool thing. jeans. It's great. Uh, let's talk about it from your point of view. She likes you better now. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's, there's no competition. <laughs> Um, <laughs> let's talk about this from from your side of things. Yeah. Um, first of all, tell us what you do at HBO, so I can ask the correct question. Okay, so I work in development at HBO. I am I'm a one hour executive, but in my sort of younger executive days, I developed girls. So I've cover I've developed that and cover it, you know, even now. But now I develop one hour, so which is more. Efficient. All right, I wanted to make sure I could ask Should about you? girls, and it seems yeah. like I can. Yes, you can. Um, Please ask. I think to those of us here and those of us who are like on Twitter, mm-hmm. Girls seems like a very popular show. Mm-hmm. And nobody's watching it. <laughs> well, that's this the is thing. my question. Yeah. I mean, we kind of read Deadline and things like that and see that the audience is actually very small for it. They're just very vocal. Well, the, what, the thing about Girls, which is kind of amazing, is is the haters. And it makes our social media team very happy because they just put one thing out and people come out of everywhere to start to hate on it. And so it's very loud and it's very strange because not, I mean, it has good, fine numbers by HBO standards. We're happy with it. We're happy with this performance. But it's just so many people hate it. How many people, how many people watch? Um, I think it's around, it's like a couple million, like not really. Yeah, we don't have to talk about numbers, but would it be a small city? A cruise ship or this room? <laughs> Probably like a, in those standards, a cruise ship. Okay. Yeah, it's not Game of Thrones, right? Like that's our juggernaut. True Blood was our; those are our bigger mm-hmm. shows. This has a small niche audience, mm-hmm. which we're happy with. We typically like to program for. You know, we don't we don't always try to reach a broad mass. It's the premium cable thing. It's yeah. sort of program for different neighborhoods, you know. But so people do watch. Surprisingly, it's a lot of men, older men. It's like the average viewer of girls. Maybe because they don't want to get up and change the channel. That's why. No, somebody's getting naked. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's always, every time the research department does a little presentation, I'm always like, God, why? It's so weird. Um, but on social media and Twitter and everywhere, Lena is very polarizing and people love to hate on her. It's, it still surprises me. We're in a fifth season and it still surprises me. But that's, but that's good for you, right? Because yes. it's a loud conversation yes. and yes. it means the people who do love her will probably come out well, that's, to yes, defend. It becomes this weird fight that she's kind of not even really a part of. Yeah. Like The people around her just yelling about her. It's very strange. So in developing original content for HBO, and, and you guys have worked for a uh, small cable company as well. I mean, FX is a good example, too. Um, are they looking for a mass audience, or are they happy with this niche audience? I think it, we like a big audience. I definitely think, you know, we're very happy about Game of Thrones and that what that's become um, but we don't it's nice we don't look for it we look for the voice and you know it's we knew not a lot of people were going to watch girls or enlightened or looking or these these shows that we we're really proud of but they aren't for a ton of people they're, on, they're not going to get empire numbers we don't have that many thank you for enlightened 
Oh, you're welcome. We love that show. That's a great show. I I didn't work on it, but I loved it too. I thought it was great. And you know, and I thought the same about looking. I think they're very special and smart. Um, But you know, they. So we're lucky in that looking got to go two seasons, and now we'll have a film. Like we get, they get to tell their story here. We we don't necessarily, you know, go like, well, the numbers aren't there, so you got to go. It's not really about that. And getting on. And getting, getting on, on is I know. If you're not watching Getting On, it's fantastic. Isn't that crazy? I know. It's it's a, it's funny. So Lord uh, Metcalf, all w- When Fargo started, I, I feel like it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception of it was that this was one of those shows that benefited from being on for whatever it was, 10 episodes, uh-huh. uh, and getting the word of mouth that this is a real high-quality product. Was there a notable difference in the audience from the first episode to the last few episodes? Size-wise? Yeah. You know, I'm not really sure. Um, You know, part of the thing is when you're on at 10 o'clock at night and when you're routinely, you know, running an hour and 20 minutes, like, most people aren't going to watch you live, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, FX has stopped really caring about the live numbers, and now it's the plus three, live plus three, or even seven. And, and you know, so I think that's a meaning, really meaningful transition for us is, you know, certainly <clears throat> my generation, we had those numbers, but nobody cared about them. And now, obviously, they, they care about them a lot. So, um, and the other thing that makes a difference is that, you know, FX is... is uh, you know, has a back-end ownership of the show. So those that becomes a different thing, you know, and you see with most of the networks these days, more and more they're, 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 they're both the studio and the network in the same house because then, then you can keep the show on the air longer because you're making money off of it in, in other ways. Um, you know, we had this amazing critical success, and, and uh, I think that's very meaningful. And I don't necessarily think that every show has to do the same thing you know i think you can have a you know a madman you know which was on some level i think the least watched of the of the amc hits but was such a pedigree project for them you know that's a very meaningful thing i think i don't think it's as meaningful necessarily on on broadcast um where it's not really about awards it's it's about selling advertising i think so but but for us certainly the critical acclaim and and um you know the space that we filled for FX. Um, you know, I mean, we're not Sons of Anarchy. We didn't have those numbers, um, but we did something else. Absolutely, and I wonder if this is part of the conversation. And have you guys experienced this at the various networks and outlets that you've worked at? That they are looking for something else these days. That a niche audience, an audience who is devoted to this thing and will kind of proselytize about it, is more valuable than. You know, the people who are going to check it out one time or, you know, for half a season and then disappear. Uh, I mean, Hannibal, it feels like, is always fighting for more eyes on it. And it's such a high quality show. It's, you know, I feel like if it were on FX, if it were on a cable network, it would be the madman of that network. Well, uh, the. The interesting thing about Hannibal and, and the relationship with NBC, which has been fantastic, there's no we ABC, Fox, CBS, they would not allow this show on their network. And NBC, Jen Salke made a promise that she would allow us to do the show that we wanted to do. And because of the price point that they pay as a licensing fee, they can allow it. And if it were, say, a 
Universal Studio production where they were spending more money, then they would become more managerial with the show because their investment is much larger and they have to protect it. But we're in that sweet spot where we're financed by a lot of international co-productions. So we get a little bit from Sky Living, a little bit from Sony, a little bit from ATX, ProSieben. All of these people kind of put in a little bit of money and NBC pays a shockingly low licensing fee. So as a result, their investment is a safe one. And uh, it's just a matter. Of, I'm, I'm shocked that we're still on the air, you know, because every season has been designed to be the last season, and to, so we paint ourselves into a corner, and then we get to blow up that corner at the beginning of the next season. So every season is remarkably different. Um, but as far as NBC goes, if they had a, a financial interest in the show. Um, they might change certain things. It's, it's an interesting dynamic when you're dealing with a network on how if we're spending a lot of money, then we spend more money. If we're spending a little money, then we spend a little money. But NBC, actually, the promotion for this season has been great. Like They really put it out there, and it, it helped being on the summer because we we're cleared of the market. Um, but I, I, uh, I'll be curious to see what will happen for season four. <laughs> Well, it also, and I've been meaning to ask you this for some time, but it also seems like because you have all of these investors behind it, that it could go, and such a low licensing fee, it could live somewhere else should NBC decide not to bring it back. Yes, it could. And usually what happens in that paradigm is that the budget gets dramatically reduced because you're sloppy seconds and you're not that network's brand. So they're not going to pay as much either. So if we did go off-network, our budget would be dramatically reduced, I would assume, and and I guess I'm at the point of my life and my career that I, if I can't do it well, I don't want to do it. Listen, you guys, uh, Phil has a new show coming on PBS. Speaking of niche. Yes. Well, this is what I want to ask about. Yes. Do they care who watches this show, or do they just want to make a high-quality Obviously product? not. Come on. <laughs> Uh, no, it sounds really great. Will you pitch it to the people, and then we'll show uh, a clip? I'm so tired of pitching. Pitch it to me. No, uh, it's, it's wonderful, because uh, um, uh, tell me if this doesn't sound like a scam to you. <laughs> After Raymond, I, I made a documentary where I went to Russia, and I, uh, they asked me to go to Russia and help the Russians turn Everybody Loves Raymond into Everybody Loves Kostya. Have, have you guys seen this documentary? I it's so it. great. It's so Thank good. you. Yeah. It's Especially called, for TV fans. Thank you. It's called Exporting Raymond. So PBS sees this. And they want to meet with me. They say, we like the idea of you going places. Would you, do you have any other ideas? And I said, what do you mean? I'm not going to go do that again. I did that already. It was, you know, funny for you. Uh, they said, no, no, we don't care about doing the show. We just like the idea of you going places. I said, so does my wife. But uh, they said, do you have any idea? I said, yes. Okay, here's something that I've fantasized about for 10 years. How about a show where every episode I go to a fabulous place on Earth and I show you where to eat? Yeah. And they said, yes. <laughs> yes. They said, where do you want to go? I'm like, what? Are you serious? I called my brother. I said, the PBS is letting me do the, a food and travel series with me hosting the show. He said, really? That's very interesting. What are we going to call the show? The Lucky Bastard? 
That was the working title for a while, actually. <laughs> but then PBS, you know, they, you can't say that. Um, P- yeah, no. So, but so now it's called. I'll have what Phil's having. <laughs> and and uh, I go to. It starts September 28th. This is not a joke. <laughs> it's on Monday nights after their biggest hit, Antiques Road Show. <laughs> You got that time slot. <laughs> With your antique road host. Yes. And I go to Barcelona, Paris, Florence and Umbria, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Los Angeles. Those are six hours starting September 28th. Ah, uh, you're looking at the lucky bastard. Yeah. Will you? <laughs> it's going to be great. Will you just tell them what you told me about the reason you did a Los Angeles episode? Because I think that's really interesting. Yes. Well, and a so, reason to watch the show. Yes, to me, there's no more mind-expanding thing we can do than travel. How many people traveled here? To Austin. By, by yes. Tell us by clock. So how much fun is it, right? You're get, eating barbecue, I'm guessing. You're, you're getting to explore a place that you don't know. And even if you live in a town, like I, I insisted on doing a local episode, Los Angeles, where I live, because you can go down the street to a place you never thought about going, a Peruvian restaurant. What do I know from Peruvian? But maybe you go and you taste it and you like it. Now your mind is a little bigger than it was. Now your palate has been expanded. Now you're open to something else new. The world would be a better place if we got to experience more things that aren't in our immediate experience. Absolutely. So that's my... That's great. Uh, let's, let's watch a clip. We have a clip from the show, right? That's, that's yeah. niche. That, niche. That, that is niche. Yes. Let, let me ask you. It's a good niche. Who is that, uh, who is that show for? Me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously we're all involved, but is this something you had to think about? Or that, the, that PBS had to think about? I, I guess. Look, I, and this is, this is a, actually an interesting subject for everybody. Do you find now when you pitch, and I'm wondering if you're, if you're coming from where you're coming from, thinking this. They all say there's how many channels now? Hundreds and hundreds, right? But when I go pitch a show, I find that I'm like walking into just a different branch of the same company because they all want the same niche. 14-year-old boys. Everybody. And so I knew when when my agency was having me pitch this show, I knew that PBS was the best place, but for a large Agency, they don't want to hear that because there's not as much money at PBS as there is at anywhere else. <laughs> and so we were going in, and the, you know, I went to the president of the Travel Channel. You know what he told me? Uh, we've done some research, and we found that uh, our audience doesn't really like travel. <laughs> I said, "Oh, oh my! <laughs> what are you going to do?" <laughs> He said, we do, uh, we do travel-adjacent shows. I said, what the hell does that mean? He said, well, like, our big show this season is uh, Pimp My RV. Oh. He says, you understand? I said, I think I do. <laughs> you take an RV, which could be used for travel, <laughs> but you just show people how you pimped it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we've done some research, and we find the, the only food our audience is interested in is barbecue. <laughs> okay. My agency, I said, can we go to PBS now? They said, no, we go to Food Network. Okay, Food Network is owned by the same people that own the Travel Network. You know what they tell me? We're kind of getting away from the food thing. <laughs> we do, and I'm, I swear I'm not making this up, we 
do shows that are food adjacent. <laughs> They're all game shows and contests, and food is the thing that happens to be the subject, but it's not about the food. It's about how much I hate you and you hate me. Yeah. Right? And the only food on my way out the door. By the way, the only food our audience is interested in is barbecue. <laughs> so I went to every niche market. Yeah. And they were all the same. They all want to skew younger. And the only people that don't really care about that is PBS, right? Listen, I'm over 40. <laughs> so I understand that that's, that's the audience. Maybe it's sad, but is that the, the audience that's left? Is there? And as far as them wanting numbers and caring about numbers, yes, they won't pick up the show until it premieres and they see how it does unless we get a sponsor, like one of these, you know, a sponsor, and then they don't care how it does as long as it's paid for. That's true. Right. That's really interesting. Sorry, it took so much time. With no, my that's crap. it's very interesting, and I think like we're seeing that we're sort of all over the place right now as far as audience and, and expectations uh, I'm going to have them ask some questions okay. while you guys come up with some answers before the questions? <laughs> no, no to, I, by the end I want answers to the bigger questions of how do we solve this problem <laughs> uh, alright, who has a question is there an audience mic? do you feel you're on okay. um, do you feel that uh, time periods are as important now in a streaming era, in an era where people are cashing up later on Netflix or with their DVR. Do you feel like having like the NBC ER hour matters in the same way it would have in the 90s, or having Monday night on CBS would matter? Well, Thursdays on NBC are no longer Thursdays on NBC. That yeah. that must watch TV, which was a, had a huge gravitational pull. That I think Zucker collapsed that star in a way that uh, kind of that really hurt the network. Uh, so it's changed. So us Hannibal being on at ten o'clock on Thursdays is not necessarily a benefit or a detriment. It's it's changed certainly for some of those broadcast television. I think CBS is, is the only network that's held on to its tentpole nights. Everybody else has kind of lost their 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 hold on those days. Yeah, I will say though, I mean looking at HBO, Sunday was always sort of the prestige night. Yeah, we're still only and, Sundays. And it still is, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, does it matter though or is that just sort of a, a marketing gimmick? I mean, it's point? still a part of we feel like part of our brand and you know Sunday night you can go to HBO and find our greats our only stuff, truly. Um, but people especially now with HBO now, it's like we are obviously yeah. responding to the fact that people need it all the time and whenever they want <laughs> it. So, okay. have it whenever. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, you had a question right here. Stand up, please. Um, Hold on. <laughs> Hi. A similar industry going through such transition is music. So, Kathleen, this question is for you, but also curious everyone's thoughts. What's the intersection between music and television these days? And so for an emerging artist that also has, let's say, a niche following, how do you typically work alongside music supervisors and get 
artists out there. I think it's all, I mean, for us, it's very specific to the vision. Lena has a very, um, well, she's obviously dating Jack Antonoff, so, like, there's a whole, she's very... I didn't know that! <laughs> Shocking! She's, like, BFF with Taylor Swift, too, whatever. Um, so, there, so we, she works, our showrunners work very specifically with certain music supervisors and, and composers that they really love. Um, as far as, are you asking sort of, like, how, if are you on the music side of things, you want to get into TV? Is that what you're asking? Kind of? Just the transition. I mean, I think it's just it all speaks to like the vision of you know the person at the helm of it. It's like they'll find the they'll find the music that speaks to their vision. And so whether it's a big artist or a small artist, it's like it's kind of you know. It's having the right music supervisor. It's having the right music supervisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. those people are so cool. That's we manage Raval, who's who's the girls. It's like the coolest guy on earth. He's awesome, um, and he's out there like di- you know sifting through the sand and really finding exciting new. Th- music. Yeah. Our her. composer is our musical supervisor. So he finds stuff, but it's usually like Debussy and Bach and things like that. <laughs> Not cutting edge. New. Uh, is there another question over in this area? Yeah. As uh, Netflix and Hulu have um, sort of revolutionized how oh, you've uh, been watching TV, a lot of people doing a lot more binge watching. Have you found that as you're making shows and putting them together that Knowing that the audience is watching it all at once instead of by you know piece by piece is changing how you're also putting shows together. Yeah, no, I feel like we talked about Great this question. in the past because uh, you knew you had a, a season of right. episodes to do and a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, I knew I was doing ten and that they would show all ten, but but I was also very aware of a couple of things. One, one most people who watch the show aren't going to watch it with commercials, right? So, you know, I wrote the scripts that I. Right, don't have any act breaks in them. I think that's a dinosaur artifice of the idea that people used to turn the channel because the last thing they saw wasn't the most dramatic thing <laughs> they ever saw. Um, but also, when you're going to score an act break, like you have to realize that for, for most people, you're just you're, you're building this crescendo of music to one second of black, and then you're back into the show, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's not necessarily the way to go. Um, and then I also thought, well, you know. I, I don't want to discourage people from binge-watching because I think it can be really satisfying to watch two or three hours. I'm not a huge fan of watching, like, ten hours of something at once (laughs) just because hopefully you're thinking about it a little bit more. But, you know, I designed these sort of um, moments of purposeful disorientation into the beginnings of episodes where you wouldn't just pick up right where you left off. There would be a moment where you were like, I don't understand why I'm in a fish tank right now. Or, you know, th- these moments where you, where you always sort of reset and disoriented the audience a little bit yeah. so that the structure of the story was so always changing that, you know, you it could exist as a 10-hour movie, which I think is a different thing than a two-hour movie or a television show, you know, it's it's got to be structurally uh, of a mind and, and of a piece, so. Yeah. I, Brian, it feels like that's happening on Hannibal as well, that, you know, there is this disorienting beginning very often, so you kind of are, are pushed off your feet a little bit and have to find your, your bearing. Yeah, the uh, as we got into the third season and we gained the network's trust in the first season with you know embracing the structure of the crime procedural and loosening up on that in the second season and then just tossing it out entirely <laughs> in the third season. There's so we're playing with so much psychology and psychological images that it allows us to tell story in a dream state, mm-hmm. and I think we do a lot more of that this season than uh, we have before. And for those who are seeing the Hannibal screening later, the second episode, it, like there's no reliable narrator. 
Oh wow! So it's it was it was a blast to do, and NBC didn't blink. They were like, "That's great!" Wow. Mm. So and that would not have happened on any other network. And do you and, network. <laughs> yeah? And do you and the writers consider uh, binge watching versus episodic watching? Is it, it does it do anything to the creative process? Uh, not really. It's just uh, you know for this third season. Uh, I really wanted every individual episode of the first volley to feel like movies, and so we we kind of do the talented Mr. Ripley in the first episode, and we do Don't Look Now in the third ep- or second episode, and we've got a great Bound episode with lots of uh, lesbian shenanigans. And uh, when is that on? That's epi- <laughs> starts with episode four, and then the sex scene is six. Episode six, you want to see that? I'll send you a clip. <laughs> Uh, Girls fan Phil Rosenthal wants to know. <laughs> and just so you know, on the dating show, you just lost the dating. <laughs> but do t- tune in to Lesbian Shenanigans on HBO. <laughs> uh, other questions? Where are you? Uh, right behind you, there's someone. Hi. Um, so with, Stand up, please. Uh, with the success of Netflix as a subscription-based model in which they don't actually um, reveal their ratings, it's only really just now the profits, and obviously now HBO Now, do you feel like this is sort of the beginning of the end of the advertiser-supported medium? You know, is this, Do you think this is a model that is going to continue to succeed and basically sort of end network television as we've known it for the last 50 years? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that... You know, you look at a broadcast hit like Empire, it's still the best way to sell stuff to people. So I don't see advertising ever going away. In some, in some ways, that's what we do is we sell stuff by providing content that you watch between the ads, you know. Um, but I think it, it has to it – ha, it it's going to become one source of revenue among many sources of revenue and, and – uh, um, you know, so so I think it's always going to be shifting, but certainly for the broadcast networks, it's hard to believe they're ever going to go away from like, hey, we love this show even though nobody's watching it. Mm-hmm. It might evolve. Or, like you see some shows that have one sponsor and two commercial interruptions, which is an interesting evolution. I think they were doing that with Heroes in the first season where Nissan sponsored the show, so we didn't have any commercial interruptions besides a big Nissan ad at the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end, and they drove a Nissan on the show. So I think we'll find clever reapplications of how to sell. I think they'll probably have a lot more product placement in, in shows to eliminate the the break between stories. So I think it's going to evolve, but it, you'll always recognize its DNA. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I think, as Phil said about his new show, if a sponsor comes in, then they can kind of be the studio for the show. I mean, I wonder if we will eventually be pitching shows to companies. Which is kind of full circle going back That's to... That's how it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, and PBS will be at the forefront of this, <laughs> of all places. Uh, yes, yeah, so let's get someone on this side. This fell in the orange shirt here. Pink? I can't see from here. Can you please explain to us, the lay people, why the networks seem to be still so obsessed with live numbers when I don't know a single person, including my 60-year-old parents who live in Tennessee, that watch live television? 
Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that the only audience they care about is between the age of 14 and, you know, thir- 35 or whatever. And, and, and yet, at the same time, you know, I, I remember on my generation having a conversation about how really the, tar- the, the people who are watching are 50-year-old women, and you can't piss them off in order to please the, the younger audience. So you're kind of screwed both ways is, is like they're aspirationally wanting young people to watch and then and then but they also have to please their their real audience which which are you know is just a different generation Mm -hmm. but um you know it's it's shifting obviously you know cable networks are just you know more and more are not caring as much about live numbers but their advertising revenue is dropping and they have to you know they've all got to get on the elevator to go up and see Rupert Murdoch or whoever it is at the top and explain why it's still a viable business, you know. Uh, were any of you guys here last year, I think it was in this room, where Kyle Killen did the PowerPoint presentation about ratings? Yeah. That is, it's, uh, we put it out as a Nerdist Writers panel, and it works without the PowerPoint. It is worth listening to if this is of interest to you. He had some interesting points about it and, and possible fixes for it, too. That guy's going to change the industry. Great to start with all in the family on this panel, because I've got a question a little bit about the quality television audience. How much overlap is there between kind of the quality audience and the niche audience? And do you see that influencing the kind of content that these niche programs have as being kind of, oh, we can't do that. That's too mass. That's too middle brow. Hmm. Well, I think one thing that makes this a great era for us is that there were 300-plus scripted shows on the air last year, and, and there are so many places popping up every day. And the only way that, that a Hulu can differentiate themselves from a Netflix or from ABC or is, is the quality of, the, of what, they put up, what they put on. You, you know, so, so suddenly we're in a paradigm where the quality of the show is what draws people to it. And, and the fact that it's different from everything else, which is a great place to be in, um, but certainly, you know, I or, or you know, Brian or you, you can go out now and, you, you know, I mean, it's um, it's a great it's a it's a seller's market, uh, you know, on, on a lot of level. And especially if you have some some wind in your in your sales to go out and, you know, I, mean, I think Carlton Cuse has eleven hundred shows on the air. You know what I mean? Um, and um, but, you know, obviously those shows have to work over time. But if you are Hulu or you are, you know, it's. Um, one of these smaller, you know, uh, the WG or whatever, like, you know, if you can make a show that that's good, but that not a lot of people are watching, at least you're in the game. Yeah, that's true. I wonder uh, about the sort of flip side of that and sort of the flip side of the experience you, uh, Brian and, and Noah have had putting, you know, high quality, very personal shows on network TV is, you know, let's look at a high quality, personal, but very popular show like Raymond could that find an audience on Hulu? Could it find an audience on one of these niche networks on Yahoo? I don't even think it would get on CBS today. Really? Really. Because they want the younger audience, too. That's interesting. They want, you know, Modern yeah. Family is the first like family show to come along and be a hit since Raymond. Mm-hmm. And that is Modern <laughs> right? There's stuff on there that we didn't cover mm-hmm. by choice, but but also that that was our sensibility and that, that and I'm not sure that that sensibility of Raymond is is welcome. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh 
I'm not saying the quality. I'm not saying anything no, else. I'm just saying the, the tone. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. For as sharp and, again, high quality as it was, it was a sort of an old-fashioned show. It's very easy, right? It's about a family, and they're funny. I, well, that I, was one of the... When I discovered Everybody Loves Raymond, I resisted it because it looked so yeah. familiar. I was like, oh, it's just a... And then I watched it. I was like, oh, this is actually really funny and clever and yeah. and doing its job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I met a... I met a Film executive once, who who oh we, they were going to handle my documentary actually, mm-hmm. and the, the old it was an old man and he said it's a it's I said how are we going to sell this how's how's the how Sony selling selling this thing he says well I must tell you uh, I I love your film it's really quite good but I must tell you when it comes to selling your movie any movie good doesn't really enter into it right. <laughs> Right, and I'm afraid that's kind of the business. Yeah, it doesn't quality doesn't mean an audience. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, right. But you see a show like Transparent, or, or you know something that cuts through qualitatively. That doesn't necessarily mean that millions of people are going to suddenly turn on um, Amazon and watch it. Um, but it enters the cultural dialogue. It becomes. It, it has just has a different place and a different impact. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that's a lofty goal as long as they're giving you money to make the show, you know, and some people are watching it. I mean, I, that feels like success to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Again, just making a thing is hard enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions. Is there anyone way in the back? No, they don't have questions. Yes. <laughs> this gentleman right here in the black shirt. Hi. So um, you just mentioned um, Transparent and you mentioned Modern Family, um, which are all shows that are kind of trying to start a conversation, it seems like, and really kind of um, bring different viewpoints into the forefront that maybe haven't been discussed. Has that been a conscious shift that you guys have seen, or has that been just kind of the, the tonal change? I feel like with 300 dramas on television, you have to do something dramatically different in order to stand out. And oftentimes, you know, with Transparent, it is a family drama at its core, but it is examining a brand new element that we haven't seen, which I think anything that's coming up has to have some new thing that they're offering audiences to generate interest. They, you have to stand there's 300 dramas. It's crazy. And there's so many buyers. It's you, you have to do something different just to be different. Otherwise, I don't think anybody up here wants to, to do wants to have anybody else's career. We want to do our own things. Uh, Kathleen, when hearing pitches uh, or when looking to develop new dramas, how do you find that that thing that's different, that's going to set it apart, that's going to get it attention while still maintaining an HBO show? It's, I mean, it's getting much harder, obviously. It's, it's a much different game. I started HBO seven years ago. It's a much different game now because there are 64 buyers or something and people do want to sell it. So um, even ideas that feel personal are sort of, you know, they can go a lot of places. Anyway, I don't, I mean, look, we talk about it all the time. It's a big question. How do we make something continue to feel HBO when there are these great people other places doing great things. We all, in my, on my team, we're all fans of shows that are on other networks, and you know, we get become obsessed with things that not, are not HBO, and that's so become. You know, it used to just be, you know, the quality of the, the we would get certain talent. Like now, that's not the case. Talent can go everywhere. You know, you can sort of be all over, and so it's it 
look, I wish I don't. I had the answer. We we talk about it all the time. What makes us? What makes this HBO? What makes makes this special? Does it cut through the noise? It's a bigger and much more stressful conversation now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll meet after and have that conversation. Okay, I have several projects that cut through the Wonderful. noise. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, yes, we have time for one more. How much do you expect uh, someone who's pitching a show to cater to the network? Um, and how much do you cater your pitch to the network? For, and is it changing more now than is who's has more power? I guess. <laughs> um, I always prefer it if you if the more personal the story. I don't don't cater don't cater your pitch. Don't tailor it. I think if you have a story to tell, come in and tell your story, and we'll figure it out. Well, you know, like that's our job is to develop things that work for our network. So if you have a story to tell, tell the purest version of your story and the, and whatever your vision is for a show, whatever questions you're asking, whatever thing you're exploring, talk about that specifically, and don't let we'll do the we'll do the rest. Like we'll figure. But it with out. a little nudity. With a, <laughs> if you're pitching at HBO, there's got to be nudity. Someone's having sex somewhere in your pitch. But no, I'm just like if you, you just talk about talk about your the story you want to tell, and then we we'll take it from there. We know how to you know put certain elements together. That's what we are paid to do. So I, I think if you are going in too consumed with what the buyer wants, yeah, you are doing a great disservice to yourself as a storyteller. I completely agree. So it gets diluted. I, I find that I just go in and, and try to convince them on the story that I want to tell, and if they don't want it, then then it's not a match. Mm-hmm. But that way madness lies, because then you're, you're just trying to shape who you are to fit another person's list of ingredients, and I don't think you should do that in life, and I don't think you should do that in your career. But you also have to be careful, because, you know, if... The wrong place will buy your idea and do it wrong. You know what I mean? And so if you sell Swingtown to CBS, like, don't be surprised when they don't want to make a drama about swingers in the 70s. Like, you know what I mean? Um, But everyone wants to hear the ideas, and they all all have a sense, like, we'd like to be that company, but at the end of the day, they're they're the brand that they are. So you just, you know, you have to protect the... Just selling it is not, you know, you don't because then it's done. Once you make it and it's and it dies, you, you're not going to bring it back. So, and the job is is really really hard. That if you find yourself second guessing all the time, then you're just going to be even more miserable. If you have a guiding light where you're like, oh, this is a story I want to tell, and this feels instinctively right for this story, you you want as little interference in that process as possible. Otherwise, it's going to drive you mad because you'll be killing yourself for a show that you don't believe in. The uh, best advice I ever got was do the show you want to do because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. <laughs> We'll end there. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Thank you guys so much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.